Two more for Doggy, and then he's got to run. John in Pennsylvania, go ahead for Doggy. And go That's pretty good. That is pretty good. All right. How are you today? That's pretty you good. Know, dog, I love a good underdog story. I like reading about presidents. I like James Buchanan as a man from Pennsylvania myself. Never married, had to do the whole presidency himself. I was wondering who you think I should read about for a good president's underdog story. Yeah, read about... Um... Uh, that's a good one. 1848 to 1852. I read that on the train yesterday. Yeah, I'm sure you did. Yeah. Uh, I believe that's Polk. Excellent. Carlos Polk, the old uh, linebacker from Polk. Nebraska. Excellent president. Very underrated. Quit. Uh, he didn't want to didn't want to didn't want to run again. Went to New Orleans and died two months later. He was 53 years of age. Read about him. You have the James Polk haircut. I think. Is that, what year is it? Uh, it was, um, I don't know. 49, you got it written on your little uh, computer? No, 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 no. <laughs> That's I'm not, a good and one. I'm not looking it up. Shut up and sit down. You're listening to The Bridge. Keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this sports show. What's it like to write about baseball and beer? We'll talk about that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 74 of The Bridge. Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time, to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you do miss the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge is available 48 hours after the initial broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode on iTunes under The Bridge Sports Podcast or on my website at londonbridge.com on Friday nights. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this latest installment. If anything, you can call in or text into the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. All right, let's get into the fun stuff. Give me the siren. In lieu of the Mike and the Mad Dog 30 for 30 set to premiere on ESPN on July 13th, I thought I'd start the show off with a throwback for this week's opening segment that will plug that show. 
with my ode to Mike Francesa, which was read at this past FrancesaCon in March as part of the Zon for Good contest that I ended up winning and received nothing for in return. You'll hear that monologue as well as some back and forth with the MC for the evening and famed Christopher Mad Dog Russo impressionist Mike Benevento. Here's this week's throwback edition of Sports News Red Like Real News. John, Josh, John, what's the difference? John from where? Scranton, Pennsylvania. John from Scranton, all the way from Scranton, Pennsylvania, folks. Put your hands together from John from Scranton, Pennsylvania. I'm sorry. Chris, real quick. Timmy's a senior this year. How do you feel about that? I'm okay? so rough. I'll tell you, I forgot that my son was his last game because. Well, you know what happened? They took Timmy out. It wasn't right for They took they my call. son out. out. He was a six foot two senior. Right the call. season was supposed to play the whole game. They took my son out. It was the right board. Because if this team would have lost that game, they would have never recovered. Okay, let's hear it. Shoot. Listen, guys, Last contestant, I'm sorry. Last contestant, folks. Appreciate patience. Fire away. Back in the days of sports talk radio, a dog teamed up with the sports pope and the sports world would never be the same. There was no way of knowing the impact that Michael Patrick Francesa Jr. would have on the lives of listeners from around the country back when Mike spent his days growing up five damn feet from the Atlantic Ocean. But that young boy grew up to fall in love with sports. Though his fact-checking days are far, far behind him, Mike was once a statistic-wielding savant for CBS Sports and eventually made his way to a studio analyst without the need of a labelless soft drink to remain sharp. His success from making bold predictions that often failed to come to fruition brought Mike to the radio airwaves and a relaunch station, WFAN. There, Mike wet his feet with weekend shows and a four-hour program from 10 to 2 before taking the leap to drive time and teaming up with Christopher Michael Russo. Mike and the Mad Dog was officially born. Though initially feared to be a huge mistake, the duo quickly developed a chemistry that mimicked that of Lennon and McCarthy. For just short of 19 years, Mike and the Mad Dog talked sports as hard as they could. Nothing could get by him. Turn it on and try him. Mike and the Mad Dog, WFAN. New Yorkers and New Jerseyans alike grew up with Mike and the Dog. They became more like family than actual family members. Unfortunately, all good things must come to an end. Chris went solo, but his chair stayed empty, ending Mike and the Mad Dog in 2008. And while we're on that, can we get one more reunion before the end of 2017? What time? Not 20, one lousy goddamn time! Gee whiz! Every single bit that GD! Every single time! 
though Chris left Mike, would you be worried? Mike indeed was on and afforded us with even more knowledge that we never knew we needed. After all, Mike knows every star athlete to have ever played in the last 30 years and has been to every important sporting event in the last 30 years as well. Despite his sports knowledge, he never did decide to become a head coach. We learned that the Mink Man and the Mons deserve a six-figure payday for putting up with Mike. That Andy Pettit is a starting pitcher. That it would take a Jets receiver three years just to gain 157 yards. That an old report is much different than a new report. That it's fine to take a quick doze during an interview, okay? That it's fine to have dead air. Okay. That it's perfectly acceptable for a first-time caller, long-time listener, to wait on hold for an hour and a half just to get told to get lost. That Michael K. well, you know. In a radio world where Diet Coke flows freely like the rivers of Babylon, and work vacations last just about the entire month of August, there will never be another number one. Number one! Number one! Number one! No one will ever have the same ratings, longevity, resume, and paychecks. However, Mike will remain a part of our lives. Mongo Nation will live on and continue to grow. The Witchin Hour will continue to provide us with twists and turns and changes during every football season. And if another radio host was sitting in my backyard and tried to take the place of Mike, I'd draw the blinds. The bottom line is... Well, wait a sec. Put my mic on! I know I could care less. Today, we're all here to honor the Pope. He'll still get us the sports news any way that he can. Back after this. Let's take a quick break to buy some Diet Coke. When we come back, we'll talk baseball and beer with someone who gets to write about both. We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. As you heard earlier in the show, you can call in or text in to the bridge at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Leave a voicemail or text your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. Now, we do like to pose a question each show to help give you the urge to call in or text in to The Bridge. This week, we want to know... What is your favorite beer and why? I hope you didn't miss us too much while on vacation for Independence Day or Independence Week, as it turned out. A quick housekeeping note for what the next couple of weeks might end up looking like. In trying to find a guest for this week's show, I also ended up scheduling tentative interviews for future weeks as well. So in upcoming shows, you might be hearing a voice from Sirius XM and ESPN Radio, another voice from ESPN Radio, who was also the current co-host of a previous guest of The Bridge, 
and a writer and podcaster from, well, we'll let Mike Francesa tell you. BarstoolSports.com. Is that right? BarstoolSports.com. So keep an eye out for all of that excitement coming up this summer. For now, we had the pleasure of chatting with Eno Saris, the man who gets to write about baseball for Fangraphs and also gets to write about beer for October. Eno has written about baseball for a slew of different platforms, and we'll talk about how that came to be, as well as getting to write about beer and combining both those passions into an ebook as well. We'll also discuss some bigger picture topics in baseball and some things that he's learned from the access he's been able to have in talking to some professional baseball players along the way. So it was a great conversation about him, not only about beer, which is always fun to get to chat about, but he's been around the game for a long time and had some pretty great insights on some of the bigger things going on in Major League Baseball. You can find him on Fangraphs and follow him on Twitter. Eno is at Eno Saris. That's E-N-O-S-A-R-R-I-S. And without further ado, let's get into that interview. We're here with Eno Saris. He writes about baseball for Fangraphs. He writes about beer for October. We'll talk about both those things. He's been kind enough to join the show. Eno, thanks for coming on. How are you? Thanks for having me on. I'm doing pretty good. As we mentioned just before coming on, the most exciting thing to watch now on television while baseball is in a break is tennis. So we'll try to make things a little bit more exciting for those that really need their baseball kick. I wanted to kick things off with you by clearing some things up for the public that might follow you on Twitter at Enosaris. Can you actually throw a knuckle curve or the Dan Warthen slider or the slutter for the more mature crowd? <laughs> no, I can't. I I flamed out uh, somewhere between junior and senior year with a cup of coffee with varsity. That's that's how bad I was. I, in fact, my last full season, I was uh, three for ten in ten games as the replacement second baseman. That's not too bad of a batting average, though. I know you don't like batting averages, right? Well, it was it was a and, and to your point. It was a poor slugging percentage because all three were drag bunts. There you go. See, that's what people don't necessarily see when they look at the stats. But you could tell people you batted 300 in your last year at varsity, and no one's going to question that. So that's perfect. That's right. <laughs> at this moment, would you be able to rattle off maybe a top three of your favorite beers and a top three of your favorite sandwiches as well? Oh, I don't know. Sandwiches, there's so many. And beer, there's so many. It's crazy. And then, you know, the thing about beer that's so interesting, I think, is that it's so locational. It's so um, local. I mean, it's, you know, what I like here in California may not be available anywhere else. I mean, nationally, you know, beers that I love, or there's a beer that most people can get called Firestone Walker Easy Jack that is just, uh, I love it because it, it has a lot of taste and smell. But it's like five or six percent, and I've got two toddlers, so you know I can't be uh, downing ten percent beers. So that's that's a beer I love. Uh, Pinkest Pilsner is, is kind of the same way. And then when you get to the the true IPAs, there's all so many. I I think most of the stuff coming out of field work here in Oakland is is probably my favorite. But sandwiches, I mean, uh, I also do weird things. You know, with my sandwiches, if, if you follow me on Twitter or Instagram, like I'm always, there's always somebody saying that looks disgusting. So 
you know, I have a weird taste, but you know, something like uh BLT with sriracha, uh, honey mustard on it would be something that I would make that I would eat any time, any day. Um, so that might give you a, a sense of the things I like, I guess. <laughs> so we, yeah, we at least know what the staples are probably in your refrigerator for most normal days when it comes to beer and condiments for the sandwiches. How about pickles? Is there a favorite pickle you have? Is that something you enjoy putting on sandwiches? Where do you stand on those? You know, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll eat a pickle. I'll eat a pickle. You have to be careful though. I, I did something with like pickles and blue cheese one time and it was one of the most disgusting things I've ever eaten. Uh, so, you know, sound very good. You're right. No. And, and one of the things that is when you, when you make sandwiches like I do, which is just have a lot of ingredients around and just try different things. And I, and I usually try to have some sort of crunchy and soft, sweet and savory. And then you have to be like, I kind of want to bring that vinegar in with like the pickles and stuff, but you have to be careful with that one. So that's uh, sort of what I, what I do. What it comes down to is if we were to come to your home for lunch, we're not leaving hungry and we're not leaving thirsty is the bottom line for everything people need to know about your Twitter. So I just wanted to square that away and let people know, should they visit, they shouldn't eat much beforehand or drink much beforehand. You'll have them perfectly satisfied once they leave. I wanted to turn back the clocks a little bit to get started with you as well. I know you studied psychology, art history, media studies while at Stanford, spent some time working in London, and the next several years not really working in the baseball world. Where did you get started career-wise after college, and how did you end up switching gears into baseball? Uh, I actually was in educational publishing for a while, and um, you know, the, the, uh, what I did in educational public, I just, you know, I came out of school in 2001, 2002 with the degree out of Stanford. And I just, there wasn't a lot of uh, work out there. And my degree was in like communications and art history and, you know, the liberal arts wing. So, um, you know, I, I worked in educational publishing for a while. I did not like working in textbooks. So I got out of that and was working in workbooks for kids at Kumon. But at the same time, you know, as much as the job was better than I was just reading baseball blogs all the time. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I thought, um, you know, I should do something that was more along what I was obviously more interested in. So I thought that I would uh, I would try and write for a blog. And, and you know, I, early on, I wrote for something called Fantasy Lounge Sports, which sounds uh, like a men's club. Uh, of ill repute it was a, it was a fantasy site and i was doing stuff for that and i you know i won a award a fantasy award for a piece about kevin moss and uh and you know how important it is to consider how old a prospect is at every level um that got some people's attention i was writing on amazing avenue about the mets uh jonah carey gave me a shot at bloomberg i'll always be thankful for that and then uh david appleman at fangraphs hired me you know, it just it, it's a lot of confluence of hard work because I, I came home every night from a regular job and, work, and wrote. And my wife, you know, was not too ha super happy about that every night. And then um, and then also a lot of good luck. We came out here to California at just the right time for me to take a shot at doing it every day and doing it as a day job. And, um, you know, I, I became a, a regular uh, a full time writer at Fangraphs sometime in um 2010, and then I got my Baseball Writers Association um, uh, card, which allows me into any stadium to interview players. 
I got that in uh, 2011. So I've been going into the the clubhouse and interviewing players ever since then, and it's it's been it's been a lot of fun. The, the, the players I think have uh, have a real great perspective on the game that has changed the way that I think about the game. I used to be much more about the numbers, and I still am about the numbers, but the players have given me a different perspective on things. You once held, or maybe even still do, have the nickname Everywhere Eno, which is humorous in the fact that it could just be from all the places you've lived and traveled over the years, just in general. But referencing the large number of websites and blogs that you've been able to contribute to, along with being featured on some pretty big platforms, the articles appearing on ESPN, you've done work on radio shows, you've been on TV with the MLB Network, did you have to polish any of your writing or delivery for those types of things, or was this all something that sort of came naturally to you? I don't know. I, I, uh, I I've always had, uh, you know, been able to come up with my own ideas. I've been, I've always, you know, I have a creative writing. One of the degrees was creative writing, so I've always been a writer, uh, and I've always been interested in sort of researching new ideas. Um, and so, you know, if you followed me at all. You know, my baseball writing over the years, it's changed early on. I was very, you know, stat front, front forward, you know, I guess maybe in some ways the caricature, caricature of someone writing from their mother's basement, blogger, yelling about this and that and lineup order and all this stuff. And, you know, since I've started to incorporate, you know, more old school ideas and, and what players think and... um I'm also, you know, I brought in grips. We've done a lot. I've done a lot of things with pitchers where they, they show me their grips and, uh, and, and stuff about, cur- you know, their curveball grips and this and that. So, you know, I've, I've you, know, like, you know, I started bringing in the sandwich stuff and the beer stuff. So it's it just really, I just love to kind of get to the bottom of a matter. And, uh, you know, if I have an idea or someone asks a question, I say, well, let's try to answer that question. And, you know, I have just enough knowledge about statistics and just enough knowledge about baseball and just enough knowledge about beer where I can try to use these different things, these different parts of my history to to try and answer a question. I think did that did that answer your question? It did. And you were able to <laughs> bring both of those together as some people might already know, you and other editors from beergraphs.com have an ebook out called A Baseball Lover's Guide to Craft Beer. Beer, culture, and baseball all together in one digital compendium, which goes very in-depth to break down the best breweries and top beers in and around the ballpark and other landmarks and things to do in those baseball towns. How much work did you put into creating a book like that, and how much fun was it for you to be able to combine two of your passions? Uh, it was it was a lot of fun. I mean, basically, the idea is, you know, how where should I drink and eat on the way to – uh, on the way to the game and uh and once i'm in the game so you know i wanted to just uh, i brought together basically through my contact in baseball writing i just asked a bunch of baseball writers where they drink and eat when they're on the road and then i asked uh you know i asked beer writers in each town and then i used some of our stats at beer graphs because we have some stats about beers and i just use those for a couple leaderboards to show you the best beers in each in each city where there's a baseball uh, stadium and then also you know here are the best bars near the stadium so you can do a pre-game or whatever it was a lot of fun it took a it took a decent amount of editing and uh it was a labor of love but it it is also kind of informs my you know my newest job which is october 
in October is a beer magazine. It's a beer culture magazine that is was built between Beergrass and Condé Nast and ZX uh, Ventures, which is like a venture capital for, uh, wing of Anheuser-Busch. So we, we had a lot of different people come together uh, to put this thing together and a lot of different expertises. Uh, but the result in October is kind of the same thing. It's like, I'm going here. Where's the best stuff near here? You know, and it's a lot of uh, this kind of introductory stuff. You know, this is what uh, this is what this is. If you never heard of this and, and here's a cool little quirk. And uh, we also do, you know, crossover stuff where we have we're doing this whole series, having a beer with, uh, you know, a famous artist or musician um, or actor or so on. So, um, you know. I think there can be a, a, a numbers background. And basically, I think that in that way, October is interesting because it, just like with Fangraph, I started with, you know, oh, I'm so into the numbers and stats really come flowing out of my mouth. But really, the in the end, what you want to do is tell a good story. And in order to tell a good story, I think a lot of times you want to bring the numbers in. You say, here's this cool thing. This is 20% better than average. Or this is the best thing here. Or this you know, the numbers say this is the best thing in the South, you know, and you can, you can bring that in, but that's not the whole story. The whole story is what went into it, the personalities that are going on in it, you know, you know, um, why this thing is so great, you know, sort of as a narrative or, or, or as a human being, because as human beings, we use the numbers, but the stories are re- really capture our attention, I think. Based on what you've either experienced or researched within writing that ebook, are there some specific beers or overall ballpark selections that stand out to you as some favorites? Yeah, I mean San Diego is pretty amazing. You you have in San Diego the um, just a confluence of some of the best beer around the park, and then a park that has been proactive in terms of bringing beer into the park, and not only bringing big partners like Stone and Ballast Point and those guys, which are great. And they're, and you know, I love that they're there, but also bringing smaller partners and having special one-off uh, kegs that come on Fridays. They have a thing called Firkin Fridays. Them in Seattle, they're one of the few places that do that. Firkin Fridays, a really cool idea where it's like you go on Friday and there's going to be a small batch. There's going to be a small batch beer there from someone doing something cool. So, um, those two are the ones that stand out. But AT&T in San Francisco has a cool thing called the Public House, which is basically like a real craft brew, uh, beer bar, like a, one of those craft beer bars that have the chalkboard because they run through beer so quick and they're just crossing it out. and They're just you know moving quickly and bringing in cool stuff. That's attached to the park, and you can bring beers into the park and, and go back and get more. So it, it's, um, it is a little bit – it's not – white in the park because you kind of have to walk back towards the gate a little bit but it is also probably the best beer selection in any baseball stadium so you know there's a there's little quirks to each park you know chicago where the white Sox play is great city field has some good things about it uh philly's ballpark is pretty good business bank so uh there's some pretty good ones and then the worst ones yankee stadium oh my god so bad (laughs) wrigley wrigley beer just terrible Dodgers stadium terrible and what's interesting about those is those are good teams and interesting ballparks and maybe they just don't care you know uh but uh and they and it hasn't hurt their attendance numbers maybe it has hurt Yankee Stadium a little bit but um it's obviously not the most important thing to somebody at a baseball stadium 
But as you can see from San Diego, they get decent attendance, even though their team has been pretty bad. Yeah, if you're looking to get a decent drink, maybe at a lower end price, and also watch the baseball game, at least in New York, perhaps going to a Brooklyn Cyclones game and then going to the Coney Island Brewery is your best bet because at Yankee Stadium, it's not always fun to drop as much as they'd like for, say, a Coors Light or something that won't be as tasty as Coney Island. So on the East Coast, we have that going for us at least if people want to do that. Just be careful if you're going to the game after you visit the brewery, of course. Have you considered opening up a bar or a sandwich shop, maybe even going as far as to also writing another book or novel or doing something in the teaching world, because a lot of what you do is focused around learning as well. Are there other projects that maybe you can foresee yourself doing down the road that also incorporate what you're doing now, just at a little bit of a higher level? Yeah. You know, I'm one of these guys that has more ideas than he has time, you know? <laughs> so I, I I have talked to a couple of people about trying to teach math to kids using fantasy baseball. That that's been something that has been sitting in my mind for a long time. I now have this five year old and two year old, and you know I think about the uh, education a lot more these days. Um, I, I've, I've I've I have an agent. We've talked about doing a book on grips. However, you know I really want to get the the idea right, and to some people it's too small of an idea. You know just the way the pitcher holds the ball. But I think it could be done really beautifully and maybe some sort of coffee table type book where you just have really interesting pictures of pitchers with their grips um, and have a little have a little content in there about the grips and, and its meaningfulness. Or we, we make it more instructional for kids and talk about or for, for you know, guys in college and, and high school and, and in the minors, talk about the benefits of grips and talk about you know, maybe the physics and your arm slot and how your grip plus your arm slot and your velocity, how these all things, all these things make movement. And so if you're in this, if you like this arm slot, maybe you should switch to this kind of grip. That could be something I could do. So, and then lastly, I would love to open up, um, yeah, like a beer and sandwich spot here in Palo Alto. I have a couple ideas about the kind of format that it could take. That would be great. So, you know, I, I'd like to clone myself. You know, it'd be kind of fun to, to have a you know a couple of different means working on different projects. But uh, there's always getting up in the in the morning and putting your pants on and making sure your kids are uh, are doing okay. Right, and <laughs> they get a little older, they can start working for you when you open up these right. places. So you have a lot more time to develop things like that. And <laughs> though I'd love to continue talking about beer, we should hit on some of the things that you're well-versed in in the baseball world. And you mentioned that you're able to get a lot of access and you are surrounded by a couple different ballparks living in California. How much time are you spending within a locker room to get that access to talk to those players? And how much time is spent at home researching things, looking at stats and doing things along those lines? It's a moving number. It's a, it's a thing that changes a little bit. But right this year, I'm, I'm basically in the park on Tuesdays and Fridays. And whoever's home, the Giants or the A's, I just go there. And that allows me to see a, a new team twice a week, usually. And I usually, I do spend some time in the home clubhouse. I have some good relationships with guys like Jeff Samarja, Sean Doolittle. Um, you know, I, I've developed some relationships over the years where I can just go and hang out with them and they'll have ideas about baseball that I can go and research. So that's, that's always been nice. But a lot of times I'm going into the visitor's clubhouse and getting to talk to a player that who's, you know, 
whose performance may have changed. So I can say, you know, what have you done on the pit on the pitching or hitting side that has, you know, that begat this this change in performance. And um, then I can also ask them about things like one thing I'm working on right now is, you know, right now there's the fewest amount of batted balls, balls in play are at an all time low in the history of baseball. We have so many walks, so many strikeouts and so many home runs that there's very few balls in play. And Justin Marja, we were just hanging out, and he said, um, he said, people go, this is what I'm, this is going to be the start of the whole piece. People go to the ballpark to see someone fall down and someone throw it away. And so he's arguing for more balls in play. And so I've asked him and a few other people that I think think about the game the same way um, to give me ideas about how we could change baseball to have more balls in play, if that was something we wanted. And I kind of agree, because if you think about it, if you're at home, you can see, oh, curveball, fastball, here comes the breaking ball. You know, you can kind of play along. You can see velocities. You can see where people are playing in the field. When you're at the ballpark, you're eating a hot dog, you're drinking a beer, you're talking to your friends. You have no idea. You have to really pay attention to know what pitch type it is. You have to look up at the board and say, oh, that was 85 miles an hour. And then you kind of, maybe you're sitting behind home plate and you can guess, you know, movement. Oh, that, that broke to this side. So that was a curveball or that was a slider. But it's really hard if you're sitting anywhere else. You know what I mean? If you're sitting in the, in the outfield bleachers, they're not like, oh, you shouldn't have thrown a curveball to him, dude. You know, I think Jeff Samarge's argument really, uh, I, I hear him loud and clear. Like, I think, you know, when you go to the ballpark, yes, home runs are nice, but having guys string together some hits and there's an error and this guy fell, fell on his face or this guy went into the crowd, that's when everyone's uh, paying attention and yelling and screaming. So um, I think that uh, he had a point. And so I'm trying to, to research that and talk to a few more people and I write the piece. That's one of the major things I wanted to hit on when it comes to baseball, because you've written in the past about the importance of breaking balls for pitchers as well, and not little league pitchers at the youth level. We don't want to ruin any arms, but established arms may be relying a little bit more on their breaking ball, because as you mentioned, it seems like hitters are going more toward a trend of sitting fastball. They don't necessarily mind if they strike out as much because they're going for the big home run hit and balls in play are dropping a little bit seemingly because of that. And it's interesting to find the balance of who should be doing what should pitchers be relying more on their breaking ball to try and get more strikeouts. Should hitters be expecting the breaking ball more so they don't get as much strikeouts is that where you're seeing the game of baseball right now, trying to figure that balancing act out? And in a way, having you as somebody that covers this, maybe find an answer for all of this as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very difficult because we all have our different preferences. I mean, home runs are up. Amazing. That's great. What if home runs are up because the ball is juiced? The, the, the ball, is, it seems like we've, we've done the research. The teams are tighter. Um, there's less drag in the air. So, you know, the ball itself has, has added these home runs. Do, how do we feel about that? Does that upset us as much as steroids did? Uh, do we not care? Do we just want the home runs? How about, you know, how that fits with the strikeouts? Because it does fit. Because what, what happens on the other end is that batters know that, that evaluators don't care as much about strikeouts. So the strikeout is not that bad of an out. And so they're like, okay, if you don't care about a strikeout, I'm going to swing hard on every pitch. I'm going to basically look, pretend every pitch is a fastball. I'm going to swing hard. And if I miss three times and strike out, it's fine. But if I get, 
if I miss, if I strike out three times and get a home run, I'm probably going to get paid, you know? So there's a lot of like what the players themselves want to do, what the evaluators are rewarding, what arbitration rewards, what, what they give money to, uh, what we want as, as players and then what the stats say is happening. So, yeah, strikeouts are up partially because breaking balls, we're, hit, we're throwing more breaking balls than ever. But, you know, I think, you know, just as a funny side experiment, it'd be funny to see someone throw 80% breaking balls and, and 20% fastballs. Would that, would that, you know, swing at everything fastball approach, would that still work if you were only seeing one fastball game from a pitcher? So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I'm not really – uh, big on answers like I really don't I'm not as good as answering as you can tell I'm not as good as answering a question as I am asking it <laughs> well what's what's great about baseball is you really can't find any answers to the game I mean last night the all-star game ends up happening the AL wins they just end up tying the overall record among the two teams at 43 43 and two and both teams have scored the exact same number of runs since the all-star game has been established. Those are things that you're not going to be able to predict when you look at a hundred years down the road, where the all-star game is going to be. And it's what makes the game beautiful in a sense. And Tim Kirchin even mentioned this last night. And it's another interesting point where the balls aren't going into play as much. And you see that pitchers are still incredibly dominant, at least at the highest level when it comes to their success. And you see it a lot in the all-star game because they're not pitching as many innings. Batters don't have time to necessarily get used to them. And we have a lot of strikeouts and they have a lot of dominant performances in these short-term effects. But when they do miss a spot, players are so much better now at being able to hit that mistake. And we saw it again last night with a couple of home runs in a low scoring game. The mistakes is what lost the game for the national league. So that's just something beautiful about the sport. And it's interesting that you're able to also talk to these pitchers about what they do, how they're holding the baseball when they're throwing these off speed pitches. And you've written in the past about breaking balls and who has the best quote unquote pitches as a pitcher is there a pitcher or pitchers that you've gotten to speak to about their grip or some of the success they found on their pitches that stand out to you and what makes them so successful in this league? Yeah, I think one of the interesting ones is Dan Straley because if you if you watch him, you may be you may scratch your head a little bit at how he does how he's been successful, and you may think that he doesn't get enough strikeouts and he only throws eighty nine, ninety, and you know, this isn't going to last, but you know, there's this guy, he's the first guy I ever did grips with. And it took him 17 grips before he finally got a changeup that works. And now his changeup has the number one drop relative to his fastball in baseball. And it's a little bit hard to see it because when you watch it, it won't drop off a table as nasty as sort of like a Brad Ziegler, you know, anything. Or, you know, it won't drop off the table like, you know, a crazy drill cotton uh, or, you know, there's a couple screwballs out there now. Jacob Correa has a, like almost a screw screwball type changeup. You know, it won't drop as much as some other people. But Straley also has a riding fastball. So between the two of those things, there's a big separation. And that makes it really hard on the, on the, on the pitcher, on the hitter. And so, you know, on top of that, I know from talking to Straley so much over the years, that he's doing his very best to think about, uh, you know, the ability to throw any pitch in any count. 
commanding any pitch to either side of the plate, you know, throwing change-ups to righties, you know, throwing any pitch to any type of batter. And that, that sort of thing, I think, makes it very hard as a hitter. Now you have a guy who has very different pitches that move in different directions, and he's willing to throw any one of them in any quadrant to any batter. So I, I, uh, I, I find dance really very uh, interesting to watch, interesting to follow, even though, you know, he's not going to be the guy, you know, it's not going to be the Chris Archer slider that they, that they, everyone shows, you know, a vid, video of it up on, on Twitter or whatever, you know, it's not, it's not, he's not, you know, a highlight real guy. But there's a lot of thought behind it. Is there a pitcher that you'd like to sit down with that's retired or maybe one that's even passed away that had a pitch that really stuck out throughout their career that you'd like to just get an inside look on how they were able to hold that pitch and make that delivery and make it such a successful one? I think Pedro Martinez. And I don't think I'd actually want to talk to him about the changeup as much because I think he naturally had a great changeup. I think he started with a great changeup. But what I like, what I like about what Pedro did was, and I try to look at this one, is did he at one point have a top five, three top five pitches, or you know, it was basically every pitch that he had like a, a top five type pitch at one point? And I think maybe in his in his peak that might have been true because he had good fastball velocity and uh, he had good movement. And even though he started with a changeup, he developed a slider and a curve that really worked for him. So. If I sat down with Pedro, I would be asking him not so much about the thing that he started with, the thing that everyone knows him for, his changeup, but how did you, once you had this changeup, how did you develop the second pitches to be so good? I think most of the people have an out pitch, have their number one pitch, that pitch that they're going to go to with two strikes to get the strikeout. You know, most of those people have one pitch like that and, you know, might be lucky to develop one that they use half as much and, and you know or half as confident and he basically had three pitches he could throw you at any time that were just death to hitters so you know in the same way Granky came up and he was known for a slider but now he has that power changeup that he learned from from Felix Hernandez you know I've really enjoyed talking to him over the years about the evolution of that slider and the changeup and, and, and how he thinks about pitching so I, I think Pedro Martinez would be a lot of fun to sit down with on a side, you've said that Granky and even Joey Votto are two of your favorite players just to get to chat with about baseball. Is there something that stands out from them off the field that you look forward to if they should come to California and you get a chance to catch up with them? Inquisitiveness. They are really interested in learning more and thinking about the game. They have questions for me. There, there's, a, there's a certain class of players now that the end of the interview approaches and they will say, are you done? And I'm like, okay, I'll go away. <laughs> <laughs> I know you don't love this, but, uh, and then, you know, there's a certain class of players that will say, are you done? Because now it's my turn. And then they'll say, have you read about this? Have you looked into this? You know, um, Sometimes they'll even ask about teammates play, you know, what, what do you think about this and what he, what he should do better. So, you know, there's a lot of, of thinking when they're on the field. Sam Fold was the same way. Um, he just isn't a, a star like Cranky and, and Votto. So it's fun to talk to a star that thinks that way and then be able to write a piece that everyone will read because, hey, it's Joey Votto and Zach Cranky. 
it's another interesting element to baseball in that players are always trying to evolve and always trying to get better. And what they're trying to change or switch or get more accustomed to might just be the slightest improvement, either to their swing or their throwing motion if they're pitchers. And regarding pitchers, it's unfortunate for them that it seems like they always get the short end of the stick and have to evolve a little bit more, starting all the way back when they changed the mound because Bob Gibson was too dominant to now where we're hearing rumors that the balls are juiced to get more offense, the seams are lower than they've ever been. Is there something regarding the improvements of baseball that you're most impressed with, either from a hitting standpoint or a pitching standpoint that you've noticed players have been able to try to keep up with their best to continue being at the top of their game on either the offensive and defensive side, because both have significant things that players have to be changing and evolving with. But since you're getting to be in the locker rooms with these guys, what stands out to you is some things you've seen is like, wow, this guy's really been able to keep up with what's been going on in the game. You know, Way back in the day, back uh, when Aaron Hill was a Toronto Blue Jay. I mean, that's not like, you know, kiddies gather around for a story time. But, uh, you know, that was, uh, you know, six, seven, eight years ago. Um, If if my memory is going, Pangrass is down, so my memory is broken. Uh, Back in the day, when a guy hits 50% fly balls, I thought, oh, gosh, this is a recipe for disaster. He's going to hit a lot of pop-ups. He's going to hit a lot of lazy fly balls. He's going to have a 210 batting average, and he's going to give up way too much to hit those home runs. And I think before the ball started acting the way it has been acting, uh, which happened in the second half of 2015, um, before before that, I think there there was a two – you could hit too many fly balls. So that Aaron Hill, Jose Bautista type, a lot of times they had that 210, 220 batting average because, and it did steal from their on-base percentage, and they did have pop-ups, and they did have problems. And I think it was partially because the ball just wasn't flying as far. Now you'll see a lot of guys, percent fly ball rate, that are willing to go there. So Cody Bellinger, Yonder Alonso, these, these are guys that basically, I think, saw an opportunity. I've interviewed them, and they said they saw an opportunity and they decided to change and just basically almost with intent, just by saying, instead of thinking about hitting a line drive to the shortstop, I'm going to think about hitting it over the shortstop. So just by changing the way they think about the game, they're able to sort of change their personal mechanics and do something that in the past has been, has been risky and more of a negative, but now totally works. You can totally have a 40, 45, 50% fly ball rate in today's game. And it works because the ball goes further. And if you have enough power, you know, innate power, you can hit it out. And those are the things that we know statistics don't tell. What goes on in the off days and the batting cages on the pitching mounds when they're getting their throwing days in. What adjustments players are making. And it's interesting now just dealing with the home run derby and some discussions that were had immediately after it with how far the baseball is traveling with guys like Giancarlo Stanton, Aaron Judge, hitting the ball more than 500 feet, almost without effort sometimes. Just a normal swing and the ball is shooting off and going 450 feet. And we hear stories from yesteryear 
days even going as far back as the dead ball era of guys hitting the ball well over 500 feet. I remember growing up hearing Mickey Mantle once hit a home run more than 600 feet, having these stories told over time that just don't seem like they would be plausible now just because of the way the game has changed. And this is sort of a long-term looking at stats and maybe what people will be able to figure out, though it would involve a lot of work to have some fun down the road. With no two stadium really being alike, home runs are almost unique to where the players are, and there's so many different factors within baseball, like temperatures and conditions, and that all affects numbers slightly, whereas in other sports that are more black and white, where a football field is 100 yards, a basketball court is the same distance, those stats maybe are a little bit easier for people to digest. Do you ever think we'll see someone, when it comes to baseball, try to maybe develop a median field or controlled field, a controlled atmosphere where all of these players would be able to be grouped together. And in dealing with home runs, for example, see how far they would have hit a home run in X field, or even going back to how many home runs Barry Bonds would have had at the polo grounds or how many home runs Yankees players would not have had with the short porch. Those long-term stats, do you ever think there will be something that's put together to maybe give a better perspective to the game of baseball and have a little fun with it as well? Yeah, I've seen some interesting things. Like I know that we took framing stats and went back in time and tried to ask who were the best framers even before we had some of the inputs that we have now. And I do think that a lot of the research that we're doing is about trying to create a level playing field for all players so that we know how to best compare them. You know, and I don't think that we're necessarily that awesome about it because, you know, right now, Nolan Arenado to me is the best third baseman in baseball. However, the numbers uh, that have been park and league adjusted and have all this stuff in there to, to, to the level of the playing field, the numbers say it's more Justin Turner, at least over the last, you know, 365 uh, days and, and, and certainly this year. So I just find that hard to, to digest. Like, I'm like, maybe we're penalizing Coors Field players too much. And there is some evidence of that if you start to really poke at the numbers. So, that, I mean, I think this goes back a little bit to what you said about baseball not really having, not providing answers so well. Because, there are, it is so complicated and we do try to, you know, take, take all these things into, into account, but there are so many. And a lot of the things that we're doing now that, that, that can actually help, you know, level the playing field. We have you know, data on how far the ball flew, how fast it flew, which direction it flew in particular and spins and all that stuff. That stuff will will help us, but we don't have that for the past. So we can't ever completely go back and say, well, you know, Babe Ruth was in it at 100 miles per hour exit velocity, so he was basically the Stanton of his era or whatever. We can't. We there's some things we won't be able to do. But you know, I, I've seen some interesting things about uh, about you know trying to go back and use the data we have and kind of extrapolate. Um, from that and, and put things on the same playing field. I mean, one of the things that we do have at Fangraphs that I normally like, I just think that right now it's in, a, in an interesting space because of the ball and everything, but the weighted runs created plus is a, is a stat I like because it's park and league adjusted and it takes into effect, you know, your walks and all that stuff and it weights everything, you know, in an empirical fashion. 
And that one you can use to compare batters across all time. And that's, that's one where like, you know, Barry Bonds and, and Babe Ruth are one, number one and number two, number two of all time, basically. So, um, you know, I, I think that, uh, yes, what you're asking in general, it is, it is nice to try and work towards putting everybody on a level playing field so we can really uh, kind of compare players, um, you know. But at the same time, there's enough in there that we will have enough barroom conversations to last us the rest of our lives. When it comes to watching the game, and we can close up on this since you've been very kind with your time, is there a player for both pitching and hitting that you enjoy watching the most? And it doesn't necessarily even have to be a star player, a superstar player, just somebody that you might have even met that you enjoy getting to know about how they're able to develop their pitching motions and their pitching styles, or someone that also is able to do the same on the batting side of things. Hmm. I think Jarrell Cotton is, is an interesting one for me because, you know, he has this great screwball, which, you know, him and maybe two other people throw in baseball right now. It has really unique movement. It's impossible. It has like 15 mile an hour gap between the fastball and it. You know, it's a beautiful pitch. At the same time, he has a very, he's, he's kind of a shorter guy and he has a short stride. So, he doesn't release the ball out in front that much and his fastball. Therefore, instead of looking 92 and 93, like the, the gun says, his fastball actually appears at about 89 to hitters. So I think that puts him at a disadvantage. Everyone, you know, kind of looks on the outside and Hey, he throws 93 has this great pitch. The slide looks okay. What's going on here? What's the problem? And having talked to him, like I know that he's frustrated and I can see him try to work through these things and try to figure things out. And at the same time, I'm not sure, you know, he may physically not be able to release the ball close to home plate and may not be able to change that. So he has to sort of, he has this amazing pitch that makes him fun to watch. He also has a fundamental flaw that makes, you know, that he has to overcome somehow. So it's either going to be command or sequencing or he's going to find his way out of it. And uh, as much as his results haven't been great this year, I have enjoyed watching him because at the very least you can watch that one pitch and go, wow, that's, that's an amazing pitch. And then, you know, struggle is real. We all have struggle, you know, in our own lives, we all struggle. So in some ways I like, you know, I, I'm not trying to say like, I like to watch him struggle, like in some sort of sadistic way. It just makes them, it makes them relatable to me. You know, I'm like, Oh, you know, yeah. You know, I, I got days where people are, everyone's yelling at me too. So, you know, to, to watch him kind of try and work through it. And he's such a nice young guy. Um, and he's from an Island. I was born in Jamaica. He's from the Virgin Islands. So, you know, I feel some sort of affinity to him. I mean, these is, this is like, I think how fandom works, you know? Yeah. We can have like a statistical component to it, but a lot of times it ends up being, you know, like, Oh, he went to my high school or, you know, oh, you know, I love that one pitch that he has, and that's fine. That's that's great. That's that's that's. You should have your own unique interaction with baseball. I think so. With all you've been able to learn from baseball, both on the pitching side and the hitting side, do you think you'll be able to develop your children into the best ball players that we've ever seen? If you could put everything together, <laughs> I'm not that kind of parent. I, you know, I said recently, I I would rather that my my kids were happy than they were successful, and I know that success, you know, is wrapped into happiness, and I do want them to work hard, and and but I want them to work hard at what they want to work hard at. I'm not going to be 
I'll ask them, hey, do you want to go swing the bat? And if they don't want to go swing the bat, then they don't want to go swing the bat. So, you know, I'm not um, – I'm not going to be, I, I, you know, I'm going to tie their right hand behind their back so that they become left-handers. I'm sure there's not a, a dull moment in your house is what I'm, I'm getting at, right? Every day's busy. <laughs> two boys, five and two. No, there, there's not a dull moment. In your house. <laughs> well, you know, thanks so much for taking some time away from that to talk some baseball. It was great getting your insight on some bigger picture things around the game and some of the different things that go on behind the scenes that people don't necessarily get to see on a box score or on their TVs. And it's been great reading your work at Fangraphs. I'll attach all the different places that people can find your work within my show notes as well so they can keep track on some of the different things you'll be working on in the future. We'll have to talk about what's actually going on in baseball down the road. But like I said, it was nice to learn about some of the things you do with the players off the field, some of the things you're able to put together on fan graphs. Continued success with that and keeping us in tune with the game, and hopefully we can catch up again down the road as well. Okay, yeah, thanks for having me on, and uh, thanks for listening. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can find The Bridge on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast. There you'll find the newest episodes of The Bridge every Friday night. And be sure to also subscribe, rate, and review. You can also find episodes of The Bridge on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and on the TuneIn app on Wednesday nights by searching for Sports Radio America. In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll dive into some more Major League Baseball, see what's up in the NBA, circle the wagons of the National Football League, and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On The Bridge keeping you connected with all things sports.